We've been practicing together now for three days. Plenty of time to enter deeply into our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our life. To enter deeply into this retreat and to feel both the perhaps challenges and delights, the range of experience that our human life can be touched by and that a retreat can offer. And I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on particular elements of that that could be perhaps framed within the the realm of emptying and emptiness which are actually somewhat different things although we may sometimes not always be entirely precise in how we use the terms and overlap them. And so just in beginning and uh, it's one of the things that we might have read in the retreat description if you read the retreat description of course we spent a lot of time working on them with the assumption that you might but of course I imagine it might just have been a good date for you and whatever was in there didn't matter too much and that's fine you're here but we use the phrase to empty the heart and it's kind of interesting isn't it because I don't think I particularly want to be empty-hearted. I wouldn't sort of advertise that as a, a thing to go for. But what does it mean to release the entanglement of our heart, the way it becomes filled with structure and patterning that doesn't really serve our well-being? that actually occupies the space that might otherwise allow for our heart's loving capacity to be available to ourselves and to the world. And so when we might talk about emptying the heart, we're perhaps emptying what is no longer needed. And this way we have of centering ourselves, to place ourselves in the middle of our story, in a sense, is something we could, I think, benefit from contemplating in this context. The sense that many of us will quite understandably have, because it's what we're pretty much taught to believe, is that we are the agent of our life that we are the producer of the events and that we're somehow responsible for what happens. And of course there's something true about that because we do have an input and an influence to the way things unfold. But what I find really helpful to consider in this context is that whatever we encounter here, whatever it might be, it can feel so personal, it's so particular, so how it is for me. And of course it will, and it does, and that's 
natural and understandable. But most of it did not start with you. It really didn't. If you, if you look at the thoughts that have arisen in your mind, and I imagine some of you may have had one or two today. Now, I don't know, I haven't spoken to you all, but it's not unusual that one encounters thinking. Probably more than one or two, maybe quite a number of thoughts. I hope you didn't try and keep count, because it would probably be a rather large number. How many of those thoughts were original? How many of those thoughts have you had before? How many of those thoughts may have originated from someone else's thought, communicated in words to you, or in some other way communicated to you? Most of the thoughts that arise in our mind, we didn't start them, we didn't even create them. We somehow took them in and took them on and came to believe we were the producers and perhaps then the owners of them. If we started the thinking, we could stop it in the same way. But the very fact that we don't stop it, we can't just say, not that we've been trying to tell you to, but it's a pretty common aspiration for meditators. Think, I'd just like all that noise to get quiet. And yet we can't do it like that because we're not producing it either and therefore we can't just stop it. Not at least in the sense that we imagine when we think of it being an act of volition. I can decide to lift my arm up, it's an act of volition. I can decide to put it down. I could say, in a certain sense, I'm doing that. And now I'm doing that. But the movement of thought is not this way, is it? How many original thoughts did you have? Does anyone claim even one? Be a bold thing, wouldn't it? I had this thought and nobody's had it before. Examine them and look and see for yourself. And, you know, if there is one, let us all know. It won't be original very long, but at least it'll be shared. And the patterns that we find in ourselves, you know, part of what we what we discover as we practice is we see how we are. Meditation doesn't initially change how we are and how we do things because we engage in our meditation practice in a replication of how we engage in our life. The difference is the meditation practice gives us the opportunity to see what we're doing more clearly. Sometimes, of course, that seeing is not comfortable for us. Seeing how we do things. Seeing our, at times, self selfishness or our, our demandingness or our insensitivity. And, you know, I mentioned this phrase in, the, in one of the small groups this morning. You know, that why is it that self-knowledge is always such bad news? It's like we go, oh gosh, that's why people don't look at, carefully examine their inner life. Because what one finds is sometimes a bit, ooh, really? That goes on in here? I do this too? But that's part of the honesty and the courage of letting ourselves see what's here. And it's important we do that, but 
what we often do is we go too far with that and we think, oh, these things that are here, they're mine. They're somehow born of myself, that I've made or created these patterns, these ways. Now, just like the thoughts which don't just stop because we'd like them to, patterns don't shift easily or quickly for the most part. Have you noticed that? Has it been your experience that you saw, oh, I kind of do this all the time and I can see it's not that helpful. Maybe it would be a good idea not to. And then we get to watch ourselves doing it, knowing that actually it's not a good idea, but doing it anyway. Now, I just want to say on that, that the Buddha's teaching on this is really interesting because in a, in a Western sort of philosophical moral framework, if you do something knowing without realizing it's harmful, you kind of get a pass, don't you? It's sort of like, we'll let you off on that because you didn't realize how harmful it was or how stupid it was. Or, sorry, a bit of a strong word there. Um, but that's sometimes the language we might find. We give you a pass. Whereas if you knew it was harmful and you did it, then you're definitely due for some punishment and some real moral judgment. That's how it's seen, isn't it? Yeah? The, Bor- the Buddha understood it slightly differently because he understood that it wasn't arising out of our volition by ourself entirely or anything like it. And his take on it was that actually if you're doing something and you don't know it's harmful, you're in a much less wakeful and conscious situation. If you're doing something and at least you realize it's harmful, you're more present, you're more awake, you've understood more deeply what's going on. You may not have yet understood what will allow you to release yourself from that compulsion or pattern of behavior, but you're further down the path. And it's absent of a moral position on either of those two locations, just This one is suffering and a long way from coming to the end of it. And this one is suffering, but it's on the way to the end of that suffering. And when we see this and we can start to make space for that, it's like, okay, okay, it's good that I can see that that's unskillful, that's harmful, that actually my my tendency to, trying to think of one, um, that's just not coming. Hmm. I should have thought of that before I got here, shouldn't I? Normally I work out all my examples before I turn up, but I just drafted all this in the last little while, so I haven't worked through all the examples. Has anyone got an example of something like that they've noticed? You could call it out if you have. You might not want to, I understand that. But you've probably got one. Right. When a little boy says he didn't mean to hit his sister, but he did, yeah. And sometimes we can be angry or aggressive, and we didn't mean to be when we react to people or speak to people and say, there's one for me. Yeah, sometimes I might be quite hard or harsh in how I speak to someone because I'm quite sure of what needs to happen or not happen. And I know that's not helpful, but I sometimes realize I've done it or I'm doing it, but I can't quite not do it. If I notice I'm about to do it, there's a chance I might not, but it's not for sure. But that's the learning process. Part of why these things are hard to work with and take a while to shift is because they didn't start with us. We didn't come up with this particular thing that we got so good at, that we developed and refined and sort of, you know, that kind of thing where someone in a position of relative power uses it for their benefit. 
in a way that harms another, which a little boy will do to their little sister. And as a little boy, I did to my sister, I know. I've asked her forgiveness. But it didn't start with us. I mean, at one level, we could say the whole thing started, you know, half a billion years ago with the first the first organic life manifesting um, as little single-celled sort of little bubbles of juice wrapped in a little membrane floating around in the ocean. That's how it began, apparently, as far as we know, in terms of what we call kind of biological life. And these little things, they had a membrane around them and they're floating in the soup. And some of what's in the soup is good for them and when that's the case, they want to expand and open that membrane and let all the good stuff in because it's permeable and porous. But of course, there's stuff in the soup that's toxic, that's harmful to them. And so when they get into that, they try and tighten up that little membrane and keep it all out. And that's your basic biological survival mechanism. And what we might notice our body doing sometimes is just that. It's like oh, something unpleasant and the whole thing tightens. Ten billion human cells tightening up, trying to not let that stuff in doesn't really work anymore because it's slightly a different situation but that's what goes on then when the sun shines on our skin and we want to just go ah let me just expand and let it all in it's the same thing and of course it gets a bit more particular than that very broad patterning of sort of what happens in response to what we find threatening difficult painful challenging and the contraction or the the ways in which there might be a, a kind of just an expanding and opening and wanting to take in what might be nourishing or delightful. And just to say with that, both of those have their place. Sometimes it's really important to say no to what is harmful. and No, that's not okay. And sometimes it's really important to say, oh, this is actually good for my heart. Let me just feast on the, the beautiful view across the hill or the... Or the the, the sweetness of a circle of people standing in the rain and just how, how lovely that is. Maybe it wasn't lovely for everyone, but for some, certainly myself, it's like, oh, how lovely, how amazing, how blessed that human beings might do this, you know? To let those things in is really important. So I'm not saying there's something wrong with that, but understanding the larger picture here. And sometimes it gets really particular, I have a friend who was exploring deeply with the, the challenges they had with, with food and various, you know, probably medically diagnosable sort of patterns of behavior that they were working with around food. And it was really difficult. And there was a whole sense of unease and nausea with food. And this person in their exploration and discovering, they, they came to understand that many generations back in their family, there was a history of the Irish potato famine. And what it seemed quite likely from what they understood without being able to be absolutely sure was that their relatives had been in a situation of starvation and the food available at one point may have been their dead companions. And somehow the, the impact in the belly of the 
the wave of that. And I'm just uh, maybe I should have given a trigger warning before I said that. Um, but it's quite something, isn't it? To suddenly realize, oh my gosh, not just that may be the story of my you know, generations back, but something in that has been passed on in my unease with food. And this was profoundly helpful for this person in understanding it. And so just this, this sense of it's not just me. So when we say things are not me, it's not that we're pushing them away and saying nothing to do with me. It's actually, they're not just me. It's when you say, not mine, mm, someone else's. No, it's not someone else's. It's just not your own. It's not just your own. There's actually more here that owns this than just me or you. For better and for worse, we are born of, of a lineage of life, of human and more than human life. And the blessings and the burdens of being the child of our parents and our grandparents. Like everyone can look at their parenting and think of the ways it could be improved. You know, everyone. I mean, maybe not everybody, but many, certainly. And I always remember one of my teachers saying, you know, if you think all the problems were because of your parents, look at all these other people. They've got problems too, and they didn't have your parents. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, yeah, different version of it that's particular and equally the blessings that come the things we can turn to and hopefully there are those too where we say oh I'm grateful I received this and yet they're not ours and you know for myself I kind of there was a, a, a period in my early sort of time when I kind of I think I felt quite like oh how great that I managed to sort of go out into the world and look for something that would be more meaningful than the kind of job that I'd started in and, you know, my spiritual interest. And there I was, a seeker, and looking for, you know, things. And I did my first retreat, and it's like, oh, wow, this is what I'm looking for. I was an eight. I couldn't believe I'd found people who were interested in what I was interested in. And I even had the sense, maybe I've done this before. And maybe I had, but I have no idea whether I existed before. But maybe I've done it before. And then, and I was in India at the time, and I, I went to meet my grandmother, who I'd never met before, and that's part of why I went to India. And she's, she's Bengali, and as soon as I met her, she, I told her I just did meditation. She said, I have a guru. He said, we do meditation, she said. She puts, he puts his hand on my forehead, and we go places. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, Ah, okay, great. You know, I do meditation. I watch my breath occasionally. Every now and then I actually watch the whole breath. But mostly I just go, you know. And it, it was very beautiful to meet this person. Um, she's still alive. She's 106. I feel a bit like a parent of young child who's so proud. Because she's amazing. She's really there. She's really present. And there's a part of me that also has to say, so... I'm not sure how much of the credit I can take for where my life went in that way because clearly it wasn't just me. Something came to me through my parents for all their, <laughs> you know, all the things I might not have appreciated there. Something came of that, clearly, to me. 
And it sort of gives some space around the, oh, that's me. It's just, uh, yeah, but it's not just me. And likewise, you know, with the difficult things we receive. And I, I, I grew up in a situation where we had plenty, but it never felt like there was enough. It's always a fear of not enough. And when I left home, and I noticed I would always be looking for somewhere I could sleep under a bush or in a churchyard. Or it was just always this thing of, where would I go if I had nowhere to go? And every time I'd see something on the side of a road, I'd look and see, is that something useful? Is that something that could be of value or, or help me in some way? And it's like, really? Really like, wow, it's compelling. Can't seem to shake myself out of that. And I still do both those things today. But today I understand having sometime in my early 30s, I, I met my grandmother my father's mother, grandmother on the other side. And she was talking to me about her time during the war. She was a Jewish woman from Romania. And her and her husband, my grandfather and my dad, aged three years old, were sent to a camp in what is now Ukraine. And they escaped. And they lived in the wild. And they were being hunted. And she said, we had not what to eat. I had not what to give him in her sort of broken English. Heartbreaking to imagine for a mother to not have food to give her son, her child. And something in that is still was with her through her life and came through my father to me as there won't be enough. And actually I've been blessed to have plenty. And that is probably not going to go away in my lifetime. But understanding it in that larger context, again, we see, oh, it's not just mine. It's not just me. And this is going to be the truth of our deep patternings, even when we can't see so clearly and obviously, oh, that's where it comes from. Because we're not always fortunate to get that information. We're not always fortunate in that way. But if we could know all there was to know about what came to us, all of it would make sense. All of it would make sense. And as I was given by someone who was on personal retreat here for several months, and I was meeting with them regularly over that time years ago, they gave me, when they left the retreat, a piece of paper on it with the words, there isn't anybody you couldn't love if you had heard their story. And it's, there's something beautiful and true about that. And what I realize now, which I didn't then, was that their story isn't just the story of their life. It's actually the story of the lives before and around, because it's also the stories of our, our family, our community, our society, that we have to hear in order to understand how a person comes to be as they are. And having heard that, it's really quite natural and obvious that we love them. Just as they are. Which might still include needing to really work on some things in ourselves that aren't helpful, work with them. And to respond to others in ways that protect against harm, so far as we can. But that we understand 
Oh, this is how it comes to be so. It's not me or you that made it happen from scratch. And we care with regard to the patterns that arise in ourselves and we take care with them. And we might grieve them and honour them as appropriate, but we also hold them more lightly because they tell us much about where we come from, but they don't tell us who we are. Not fundamentally. And so there's a releasing of our entanglement with the material of my life, the stories, the patterns, while at the same time we might have a willingness and recognize an urge to, to seek to address, to work with, to attend to those places in ourselves that need it. And yet to understand it doesn't define us in this way. Just as We might see emotions, difficult emotions, beautiful emotions. They don't define us but we learn to hold them with kindness, to feel them when they're challenging to ask what they need, to give them space, without needing to get rid of them, the scary, the difficult, the embarrassing ones, or to maintain those that feel good, that we enjoy or that we are flattered by because we look good with them. In his book, The Prophet, Khalil Gibran speaks of this. He says, if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. I find this, this language in this image, the seasons of the heart, so beautiful and powerful. That sense of the natural rhythmic movement of life that we see around us that we don't always recognize within us and that of course we'd wish to live in the summer of things and the ripeness and the fullness and the, the flowering of beauty and abundance and of course we would but it's not something that can sustain it arises out of conditions it changes it fades away into, into, into autumn and the dying back and into autumn fades into the aridity or the cold or the harshness of winter we think I don't want to go there but out of the very hard time of winter comes the new life of spring that blossoms into summer and we know this but when we see this more truly deeply is our story too then we can watch we can find serenity in the midst of winter knowing it is not forever and knowing it does not define who we are, which is where we most struggle with the difficult experience, is we believe it or imagine it to somehow define or confine what we are. 
and experience cannot and does not in itself have the capacity to do this. And so we contemplate experience. In the context of practice, there is the training of attention. There's the training of the heart and mind in terms of directing and stabilizing the attention to do with that capacity for connecting with, opening to and becoming interested in our experience and these primary qualities of connecting with opening to and becoming curious about like understanding there's more to discover here this is a kind of a primary orientation and vehicle for practice but we also can come to it from this contemplating of just so what if I look at my experience through this lens through this framework or this way of looking and the process of emptying out the, in a way, the structuring and the stuckness and the resistance and the tightness within our hearts and equally our mind and our body. Is profoundly supported by this reflecting on and considering, ah, so what's here, what's happening, what's really, as best as I can tell, going on? And we're invited to contemplate and to see how phenomena, and we can check this from our own experience, to see how they arise out of conditions, how this body is dependent on the coming together of our parents, how it is sustained moment by moment by the presence of oxygen to breathe, and simple temperature that we can survive in, which is a relatively small band in which a human body can exist. We need warmth for that. Or if it's too warm, we need coolness for that. These conditions, and so many more. Phenomena, including the phenomena we call this human being, arise in certain conditions. And if those conditions do not sustain, what has arisen dissolves and passes. And all of the conditions, of course, are equally dependent on other conditions for their sustaining. And so they do not continue. And therefore it's for sure that whatever arises passes. And we know this. And so in this, what we see is they are able to be understood as empty. Not using empty in the sense as a negating of what is showing up or revealed, but as a, as a way of looking at the experience. And so emptiness in this way, it's not a thing. It's not the thing. And emptiness sometimes gets a bit of a religious sort of charge around in sort of spiritual circles like emptiness. Yeah, wow. You know, did you experience it? It was, you know, and it, you know we could put it alongside with God or, um, you know, cosmic consciousness or these kind of things that it's not an experience as such, although we can experience the effect of it. We tend to make, and by the way our language works, particularly here in um, 
European and I think the sort of, uh, yeah, the European languages particularly, but elsewhere too, I think, make nouns out of what is actually a verb. We talk about something that's happening and we make it into a something. Awareness happens. But it's not a something independent from the fact that it's happening. It's just a happening. Emptiness is also not a something, but it's a characteristic of everything that's happening. And so we can talk about emptying our heart. That's a conventional use of the word empty or emptiness, and it's fine. But when we're talking about emptiness from a Dharma perspective, shunyata, or sunyata, depending in the Pali or the Sanskrit. It's not about an absence or getting rid of the phenomena that are arising. It's about seeing them through the understanding that they don't exist independent in a fixed way apart from the conditions that give rise to them. So we see and we talk about experience, sights, sounds, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, images. That's pretty much it, isn't it? Did you ever have an experience that wasn't sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, feeling or image? I can't think of one. It's that, that's it. They come in a range of different shapes and forms and feelings, of course. And these arise, these experiences, sights, sounds, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, images. And they change, they pass. They disappear and dissolve equally as they emerge and as sounds emerge out of the silence and dissolve back into it. When we start to see they're emerging and dissolving more clearly, this is why we pay attention. We see, oh, they're just here and then they're gone. Just here and then they're gone. They have less power to compel our attention. We're not so much in bondage to the experiences or the particular shape or flavor or color or texture or taste of the experience. And attention is interesting here. You know the language we use about attention? We talk about giving attention. We talk about paying attention. Is there any other way we do that, do something with attention? Those are the two ways I use it. Giving attention, paying attention. What else do we give and pay? It's like, oh, it's like currency. When we talk about something we're giving and something we're paying, it's something profoundly valuable. When our attention is being captured... There's a profound loss. When our attention is released from that, we actually are enriched. 
And as we become less identified with the particulars, the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, and images, that's it, take them off. One, two, three, four, five external senses, and we could say two or three. We could argue about our images a kind of thinking or our thoughts a kind of image. And emotions, feelings, they're a kind of a construct within that. But that's it. As we become less identified with these, as we start to say, oh, look, here they come. Of course, they need to be cared for and understood. But the sense of the noticing of them stands out to us more. We can speak of as awareness, as presence, as consciousness. And we see it's happening. But it's not bound to the experience. It's not defined by the experience. But nor can it be just... nor is it in any way separate from the experience. It doesn't exist without the experience. I mean, it doesn't exist in a sense at all. And yet, it's not nothing either. It's something significant that's happening. We become interested in this. Because as we see the emptiness of things that arise and pass. And because they're arising and passing, they cannot be fixed and unchanging. And we see that they're arising dependent on conditions, so they cannot exist separate. We can start to sense and be touched by something mysterious, something profound, that speaks to us from the very ground of the ordinariness of things just coming and going and being known, which is what we're doing here, practicing knowing things coming and going, but also becoming sensitive to, beginning to notice how it is that they are known and what it is to turn towards that knowing of them. And the teaching and perspective of emptiness and and the Buddha's dharma and his teaching is it's an understanding and a perspective that releases the heart-mind from entanglement, from bondage. The understanding that all things appear and disappear. That the appearance of separate things, including ourself, is not the truth of it. It means that the the entanglement, that whatever it is that hooks us and grabs us begins to lose its power. And so we're not talking about getting rid of the realm and the, or getting out of the realm of experience. And emptiness is not in any way the absence of phenomena. It's not like we talk about, oh, there's an empty space and there's nothing in there. We use the language to indicate a space or an absence, a space without something in it or an absence of phenomena. But and it's got, there's a reason why that term gets crossed over and is a little bit confusing. I hope I can unpack it a little bit here. But empty space is not the same as the emptiness we talk of as shunyata, as sunyata. 
a room full of people dancing joyfully to loud music is at the same time completely empty in terms of this. Empty of any inherent separate self-existence. But obviously full of people having a good time, hopefully. And yet, in the understanding of emptiness, what we're understanding is that there's something that's being added to the perception of a room full of people dancing or organic life sitting here at the moment and talking about something and wondering, can I talk about this complex, challenging, profound material and not be either confusing or really heady or, you know, whatever? There's something about just, okay, yeah, that's going on. And what is it to empty that of the imputation or the addition or the unnecessary extra sense of self-existence, of something separate and fixed that's being added to what's actually arising in the way I'm relating to it. In that sense, the perception of emptiness empties that kind of unnecessary and unhelpful addition to the raw information that we're getting. Does that make sense? You're okay if you nod and go, or sorry, shake your head and go, uh uh. <laughs> I mean, I'm asking myself really, does that make sense? Have I, <laughs> um, I hope it makes sense. So there's an emptying of that which was unnecessarily added by our habitual way of perceiving. Our unexamined and unquestioned assumption based on apparent shape of forms. And a deeply, deeply, deeply embedded sense of, but it's me, I'm over here, it's... Somehow, got to be like that, doesn't it? And maybe there's something true about that. Because it's not like we're somewhere else, or that this is somebody else. But it's not just that. Something more than that is here. And so, although the translation of shunyata that's most common in our usage is emptiness, with that whole association of absence or lack, or nothing thereness. The other translation that's also significant and less referred to perhaps is boundlessness. Huh. We're talking about boundlessness. When we see there is no separate, fixed and independent self-existence in things, there are also no boundaries between them. Because that's what the sense of self-existence does. It separates and says, there's this thing over here that's just like that. And it's always been like that, and it's always going to be like that. And it's not like that, except because that's what it is. As opposed to, oh, it's showed up like that because of all the things around it. Which is actually more close to what is true. That latter. And so, it's not... When we see there's nothing separate, fundamentally separate or separable, what we also discover is something boundless or a 
something's the wrong word to use there, but it's like, oh, boundlessness, unboundedness. And it's not an accident that that word sounds quite similar to the word we talk about for freedom, for liberation in the Dharma, to be unbound. Of course, in psychological terms, being unboundaried isn't always a good thing. And again, just to name and notice, oh, yes, it's useful to be able to have good boundaries, to be able to know, yes, when it's dinner time, I'll put a f- spoonful of food in this mouth and I won't try and put it in that mouth because that would cause all kinds of trouble unless that's my infant child and I need to feed them, in which case, fair enough. So there's a practical, pragmatic understanding of what's useful and appropriate that goes with that, but at the same time, to be empty of self is to be full of unlimited, infinite, interconnected and changing life. A fullness of life, of suchness, of as it isness that's doing this. And so we see that the appearance and the attribution of a a separate existence to phenomena or collections of phenomena or particular shapes and configurations of phenomena creates a dilemma for us. Because if this that is me has come together and I know that things that come together are going to come apart, I'm not entirely cool with that idea at some level. It's like, huh, really? And of course, there's something very true and profound and mysterious about the reality of death, of mortality. And that's not the whole story. If we were to imagine a wave on the ocean rolling along as waves do not a care in the world it's a big ocean it's a sunny day all these other waves some in front some behind and at some point in the journey in the distance there's this white stuff and it's like getting closer oh it's the shoreline oh my gosh and the waves out there in front of me they're hitting and they're, they're being destroyed and it's like, I don't like that. That doesn't look good at all. No way. You're like, you know, where's reverse gear in this thing? You know, and it doesn't have one. It's going that way. Life goes that way. And it might be terrifying if a wave was thinking in those terms. And of course, it's not entirely wrong because the wave hits the shore and it's gone. But what happens to the water? Nothing, really. Nothing of any significance or ongoing consequence. And we see that a wave is empty in these terms. It only exists and does not exist apart from the wind and the water and the seabed rising to the shore. And when those conditions no longer sustain its 
manifestation it is still of the indestructible nature of water to understand the emptiness of things is to is to contemplate the deathlessness and ultimately the birthlessness and deathlessness of the dharma of life And it doesn't mean we disregard or disrespect the things that appear because a wave, hey, you can surf on it and have a great time. And it can carry you away or smash your house. So we need to be skillful with the realm of waves and things that have come together, but understanding them for what they are. And it doesn't... Understanding emptiness doesn't take away from the world of things its value, its meaning, its significance. Because when we see emptiness, it's seeing phenomena, self, so-called, other, so-called, all things, so-called, through the perspective of contemplation. And when we don't conceive separation, so we don't make them into the thingness that we add to, to say thingness which is separating and in a way boundaring, containing, defining and therefore limiting. When we don't conceive or impute self-existence in this, what we see is something mysterious. that we might speak of as sacred or divine and equally as just remarkably and profoundly ordinary. And the, the mystical teacher of the Judaic tradition, Dov Baer of Merzrich, he says, when you gaze at an object, you bring blessing to it. For through contemplation, you know it is absolutely nothing without the divinity that permeates it. By means of this awareness, you draw greater vitality to that object from the divine source of life itself. Since you bind that thing to absolute nothingness, the origin of all. On the other hand, if you look at that object as a separate thing, by your look, that thing is cut off from its divine root and vitality. And one could perhaps add to that, and just acknowledging, you know, so there's a particular sort of religious tradition framing the language there. By our look, that thing is cut off from its divine root and vitality. And I would say, so are we, by that look, cut off from that too. And we feel that. So we're invited to look, to bring this contemplation, 
Not that we have to be kind of trying to make everything appear according to that, or constantly sort of working it, sort of like pushing ourselves, I've got to say it this, I've got to say it that way. No, but just notice and asking the quiet question sometimes. How am I looking here? What am I bringing to this perception? What might I offer it by way of contemplation? To see where that takes us, what that might offer or reveal. So I'll just finish with a poem from Rumi. He says, Love has taken away my practices and filled me with poetry. I tried to keep quietly repeating no strength but yours, but I couldn't. I had to clap and sing. I used to be respectable and chaste and stable, but who can stand in the strong wind and remember those things? A mountain keeps an echo deep inside itself. That's how I hold your voice. I am scrap wood thrown in your fire and quickly reduced to smoke. I saw you and became empty. This emptiness more beautiful than existence. It obliterates existence and yet when it comes, existence thrives and creates more existence. The sky is blue. The world is a blind man squatting on the road. But whoever sees your emptiness sees beyond blue and beyond the blind man. To praise is to praise how one surrenders to the emptiness. To praise the sun is to praise your own eyes. Praise the ocean, what we say, a little ship. So the sea journey goes on and who knows where. Just to be held by the ocean is the best of luck we could have. It's a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter how long we've been unconscious. We're groggy, but let the guilt go. Feel the motions of tenderness around you. The buoyancy. Let's have a few moments quietly together. So may we all come to see in our practice and in our lives, to see through the eyes of wisdom and the heart of emptiness. 
May we know the the buoyancy of floating in a medium that is not different than ourselves and what we are. For our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.